Last week, we read about the death of Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, and we read about how there was a decline and a steady decline in his fortunes and how towards the end of his life, we, the simple understanding seemed to indicate that he actually worshipped idols himself. And we explained the way the sages understand that it does not mean he literally worshipped idols. It means that he was somewhat complicit in his wife's worshipping idols. And we discussed how such an, a thing could come to be. And then we also talked a little bit about how it seems that towards the end of his life, the tax burden has gotten greater and greater. Right? So to cover all of his vast um, work projects, he needs a lot of money. We read how Yerubim ben Nevat at first is rebuking Solomon in a way that is appropriate. And that is why he merits to be the person to whom the northern kingdom will go to. But in the end, because he does it in an inappropriate fashion, he will get punished. And King Solomon wants to kill him and he has to run away. Okay, that's what we uh, read last week. Yeah. You mentioned last week at the, towards the end that uh, uh, that's uh, approximately the period of time where King Solomon actually wrote his books, right? The Kohelet and Shira Shirim and all that, right? So isn't it a bit contradicting that towards the end of his life when he's more idol worshiping or less, you know, less kind of um, in the spirit of God and he's writing all these beautiful books? Yeah, so I think the assumption would be that this happened even after that. In other words, that he writes the books after these incidents. We don't know exactly when these incidents take place, right? Um, he, he was king for over 40 years. So was it in year 28 that they build a, a shrine and he doesn't break it? Maybe later on he does break it. We don't know. We have no indication. Okay, so now we're going to read about the split. So we said before that King Solomon, right, Shlomo HaMalach, has a son, Rechavam. And Rechavam is going to take over after his father has died. But let's read what happens. Rechavam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to acclaim him as king. A couple of questions over here. What should be the national city, right, the, the capital at this point? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, why are they going to Shechem? What's the deal with that? Why did <clears throat> Also, the, the verse itself really kind of acknowledges this uh, tension and says, all Israel had come to Shechem to acclaim him as king. Now, what I mean to say is like this. We've mentioned in the past that only a king, uh, we brought the Talmudic passage, only a king who there was some sort of a shaky succession plan would need to be anointed as king. But otherwise, a child would not need to be anointed as king. It seems over here, there is a concept that he has to be acclaimed as king. So that means that there is a, some sort of a shaky succession plan that's happening now, right? That the people are not so certain they want him to be their king anymore. Now, they come to Shechem, and we will read a midrash that talks about why this happens in Shechem. But what we see is that the, um, all of Israel have come to Shechem. There's a, a, an understanding here that's going to become more clear as we read this story. But... Yeravam, son of Nivat, learned of it while he was still in Egypt, for Yeravam had fled from King Solomon and had settled in Egypt. Now, who is Yeravam? What tribe is he from? He is from the tribe of Ephraim, who is from the tribe of Joseph. Okay. So once again, we're going to have this ancient battle between Joseph and Judah is going to be continued. Now, where is really Shechem lo located? Do, do you know? I think it's Nablus today. So I think that's, uh, um, right? I think it's where the, the, what the um, Palestinian city of Nablus is. I think that's about a, a little bit north and a little bit east of Jerusalem. But Shiri, okay. am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, Nablus. Shrem is Nablus. Yes, yes, you're right. It's in the um, um, Shomron. It's in the, where, they, where they call the, you know, the occupied territories. Yeah, you and, mean uh, that you ho ho ho? You mean the disputed territories? So 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 she read said where they call the they, I said where they called, not me. Uh, they, what she okay, calls. Sweet yeah, yeah. Sweet yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, the the Kaver Yosef is there, right? The the gravesite of Yosef is there, right? Because Yosef Shrem is uh, part of the is part of the part part of the ancestral lands of Ephraim, who's part of the tribe of Joseph. Um, when Yaakov is dying and he's giving blessings to his children, he says, Shcham Echad 
says, I give you one extra portion over your brothers, he tells Yosef. And um, so many people say that that's actually Shechem. So that's where Yosef's body was buried after it was, you know, reinterred after, remember, Yosef's body goes through a lot of uh, troubles on his way to Israel. He's buried in Egypt, in the Nile River, right? Then their body is raised from the Nile River. Then they travel through the desert for 40 years, right? Miraculously, it is preserved over that 40-year period of time. And then after that, they rebury him in Israel, in this Kever Yosef, in the grave of Yosef, which we're not really able to go to anymore, unfortunately. There used to be a yeshiva there constantly, but um, you know, Palestinians uh, you know, did their thing, and we are no longer able to go there. I think like once a year, we're allowed to go there, I think. Okay, so they sent for him. Now, who is they in this picture? Right? Wait a second. Why, why did Jeroboam or uh, run, leave uh, Israel and run to Egypt? What, was, what set, sent him off? Because in last chapter, um, Joseph actually wanted to kill him. Not Joseph, I'm sorry. King Solomon wanted to kill him because he was being disrespectful. Right. And therefore now he ran away. So then he was in Egypt. Thought that was uh, Yeravim. That was the one who was disrespectful. It was Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam is the is the English of um, Yeravim. I know it doesn't sound that similar, but that for whatever reason, the King James Bible. That's how they decided to translate it, and that's how we have it today, right? Okay, well, why don't you highlight uh, the Hebrew name for Yeravim? So it's right over it's here. Right yeah, I mean, I know where it is, but Chuck, there's just one person it's down here too. Those two names are just the same person. No, no. Sorry, Yeravam and Jeroboam is the same person. The same. So Yeravam is from the tribe of Ephraim, who is a descendant of Joseph, and Rechavam, which does sound a little similar, I'll grant you that, is from the tribe of Judah and is a descendant, is the son of King Solomon. Okay. Now. So Yeravim runs away because he, he's under a, uh, a fatwa, as it were, right, for having been disrespectful to <laughs> King Solomon. And he runs away and he goes down to the land of Egypt. Now, if you remember in last week's Torah, last week's uh, chapter, what we mentioned is the fact that the prophet Achia Hashiloni had actually come to Yeravim and told him, you will be the master of the Northern Territories, and you will have 10 tribes with you. He gave him a prophecy. He tore the garment to show him that this prophecy will come true, right? The symbolic act accompanying to guarantee that this good prophecy will come true. So he runs away, but clearly he is a man of stature, as we have been told in the past, and he is a distinguished personage. Now we're going to see that the people have sent for him because the people have an issue before they are ready to accept Rechavim as their king. They have a little bit of an issue. They have a bone to pick. And they kind of want a agreement that he's going to act in a certain behavior and that they're going to ask him that before they're ready to accept him. So they sent for him and Yeravim and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rechavim as follows. Your father made our yoke harsh, heavy. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke which your father laid on us and we will serve you. He answered them, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now, it's an interesting conversation. This is not a democracy, right? This is a kingship. It's a monarchy, right? It's not a constitutional monarchy either, right? This is a straight up monarchy. So what's going on over here? The people feel that they are entitled. The people feel that they have the right to demand a certain thing or else they're telling him, you know what? We don't need this leadership of Judah. We will go back to the other type of leadership, the leadership of Joseph. So it's up to you. Choose. Now he has some power because he says, listen, you go away for three days and then you come back to me. So from the beginning, he's telling them, I want you to come back to me. We're going to have a, a powwow. We'll do some political maneuvering and then we'll decide what to do. Now what we're going to see is that he is an awful, awful strat strategist, an awful tactician, an awful politician in every which way. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, how could he be such a bad politician and so bad a strategy? And just really awful about every, every step he's going to take is the wrong step. If he is the son of King Solomon, the grandson of King David, who were far more adept at their practices. And we'll see there's going to be an answer to that question as well. Now, what should the king say? The fellow who wants to be the king, what should his response be when the people come and say, well, we're not so sure about that. Your father made our life hard. 
And if you make our life easier, then we will serve you. What should his response be? Anybody think of a better response than to say, go away and then come back. I'll figure it out what I want to do. Yeah, give him something. What was that? Give him something. Make her, you know, don't. <laughs> ah, see, Paul, you are a child Offer of, me. you are a child of the 60s. That is not what we do. We don't coddle people. When you are the disciplinarian and you are the king, you say, you're telling me what to do. Line up and I'll execute you. What was that? Put them in jail. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a complete, completely different perspective over here. This is not a democracy. You are not in charge. You're telling me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. But he doesn't do that. Let me consider your proposal. Go away and then come back. And now we're going to see the way he deals with it. And every step along the way is the wrong answer. Either he, in theory, he could have done what Paul is saying, that he could have immediately said, you know what, guys, let's figure this out. Let's work this out together. He would have been a weak leader, but at least he would have been a leader. But instead, as we will see, he's going to whiffle waffle, and that's going to create terrible, terrible trouble. So the people went away. King Rehavim took counsel with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. What is the point of saying that the, the elders who have served his father Point of saying that is that these are shrewd individuals. These are individuals who were serving in the king's court when the king's court was at its height and dealt with palace intrigue on a daily basis and dealt with national security, dealt with the security and interplay of other their allies, their enemies. These are people who have their wits about them. So first he says to them, what answer do you advise me to give to this people? They answered him, if you will be a servant to those people today and serve them. And if you respond to them with kind words, they will be your servants always, right? So they basically gave the same advice as Paul had given, okay? Also children in the 60s. I read them, so I, I, I didn't make it up. <laughs> okay. okay. Now, interesting to note, and this is something which we've mentioned in the past, the way that they tell him is, if you will be a servant to those people today and serve them, now, typically, you don't think of a king as being a servant. The king is the one on top. People beneath him are the servant. So as we mentioned in the past, the Talmud makes a point of emphasizing right here, this idea of saying that you can be a servant to the people is a way of recognizing that a position of leadership, a position of power, the proper way of looking at that is I serve at the people's will. Right? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the people get to choose whatever they want and they could be a royal coup and so on and so forth. What it means to say is that your purpose of being a leader is not for your own power, is not for your own honor, it's not for your glory. It is solely to serve the people by leading them in the proper way. But he ignored the advice that the elders gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Okay, So it's an emphasis over here. The young men, they grew up with him and they were serving him. What are we supposed to understand over here? Well, there's a tremendous contrast between the first group that he was going for advice and the second group. Remember, Rehavim at this point is 40 or 41 years old. He's not a young man and not a young man today and certainly not a young man in those days when they didn't, you know, didn't have the millennial stage where you got to be an adolescent until you're 32 and living in your parents' basement. At the age of 40, you were an adult. You were a full-on man. You were a mature adult, but they called, they called him young men. The Talmud says, you know why? Because they're immature because they don't have political savvy. They are selfish. They are self-centered. They're young people. Now, they grew up with him and they were serving him as opposed to the advisors to his father. What's the difference between these two groups? One group is going to be a yes man group. One group is going to say whatever serves their interest, whatever they think he wants to hear. The other group is going to say whatever is truly good advice. And indeed, when he asks the elders, the elders say, you have to recognize the role that you should be playing right now. You have to recognize you have to lighten that burden. And they're saying this as having, after having been King Solomon's advisors, they're implicitly acknowledging mistakes that King Solomon has made. Young people say, what do you advise that we reply to the people who said to me, lighten the yoke that your father placed upon us. And the young men who had grown up with him, again, that emphasis on growing up with him, answered, speak thus to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us. Say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. My father imposed a heavy yoke on you and I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. 
Now, seemingly at this point, what the verse is teaching, and we're going to see what the result of this is, is that this was not the right angle, right? That you win more people with the carrot than with the stick, right? However, what I was saying before about him asserting himself, what I mean to say is that if he asserts himself initially and doesn't have to go to Shechem to where the people are, but immediately demands a certain level of respect, it could be things could have gone on for a little bit longer in this path, in this vein. But once he becomes wishy-washy and says, give me three days to think about what I will choose to do, and then there's this back and forth behind the scenes, it was doomed. You rub him. And all the people came to Rechavim on the third day. Since the king had told them, come back on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, ignoring the advice that the elders had given him. He spoke to them in accordance with the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. Now, what does he not say? What does he tellingly leave out of this point when he's speaking to the people? He doesn't mention anything about his finger being larger than his father's loins. Because that's stupid, he's not. He recognizes that the people still had a certain affiliation to King Solomon. And if he says something disrespectful like that, he will really lose whoever was still remaining to him. The verse now tells us something important. The king did not listen to the people. For the Lord had brought it about in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord had made through Achiah Shiloni, the Shilonite, to Yerubam, son of Nevat. What does this mean? What the verse is telling us is there is an interplay between God interacting with the world and God changing the course of history and between people making the wrong decisions in life and between the results coming the way that they will come. And that interplay, that uneasy interplay is difficult to define it clearly, but the verse is telling us explicitly over there that why didn't the king listen to the people? That was silly of him. He should have listened to the people. By anybody's recognition, by anybody's uh, rules of uh, conflict, by anybody's rules of political savvy, he should have listened to the people. How could he possibly have been so silly? And the answer is that Hashem causes this to come about. This now, is something like when uh, the uh, Lord uh, Hashem interfered with Pharaoh. Exactly. It is very similar to that. And it's also very similar in general to a concept that we have. The concept is that lev malachim biyad elokim, that the hearts of the kings are in the hand of God. And what this means is like this. When it comes to the concept of intervention, of divine intervention on a daily basis in our own personal lives, it is a question exactly how much God intervenes in a daily basis in our lives. But everybody agrees that when it comes to the state of the monarchy, the state of the powerful people in the world, people have the ability to influence the entire world, over there, God does intervene. So in other words, things that happen on a global scale, that God intervenes according to everyone. Things that will have an impact on a more a smaller, more individual scale, that already is a question if God is interacting with the world on a daily basis to make sure that results come about in a specific fashion, or he allows it to follow the rules of nature on an individual, very granular scale. But that doesn't make sense if you look both at Solomon and David. I mean, that with Solomon be, you know, supporting the, uh, this, this, the other religions and with David and Bathsheba. I mean, there were so many places where if, if Hashem had intervened that should have that should have that he should have done if this was really him interfering with free will. Yeah, so let, let me be clear. I'm not trying to say that a king never has free will. I'm not saying that a king is always just a, you know, a marionette and does whatever it is that God wants him to do. I'm not saying that at all, that that would, that would negate free will completely. And I don't think that's true. What I'm saying is that there are times when God gets involved on a more open way with kings and with leaders than he does with individuals. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that every single thing that happens to a king happens only because God wanted him to think along those lines. That I'm not saying. Okay. Question. So this uh, verse talks about the promise that the Lord gave to Jeroboam. Uh, yeah. what, 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 what was that, that promise? So in last week's chapter, what we just studied is the idea that Hashem promises through Achiah, the prophet, that 
uh, Yeruvam is going to be the king and the leader of the 10 northern tribes. Okay? So let's look at some, source, at some of our sources now, then we'll come back to the verse. Now, so source number two is the Talmudic passage. And the Talmudic passage really ascribes terrible tragedies to Shechem. Because if you go through a Jewish history, Shechem is a place where bad things happen. The verse states, and Rechavim went to Shechem. For all Israel came to Shechem to make him king. It was taught in the name of Rabbi Yossi. Shechem is a place ordained for calamity. In Shechem, they tormented and raped Dina. In the outskirts of Shechem, the brothers sold Joseph. In Shechem, the kingdom of the house of David was divided. Okay? Very important points about what happens in Shechem. And our rabbis say there is some sort of a, a running theme when you have a place like that where bad things are happening. You have a day in which bad things are happening. That happens because Hashem wants it to happen in this type of place. It's, it's a place that is, uh, if something bad will happen, it will happen in this place. Okay? Now, the next source is going to be Rabbeinu Bachia. And Rabbeinu Bachia is going to have a critique of King Solomon. And the critique is based on his inability or desire to not completely adhere strictly to what the Torah actually says kings should do and how that leads to this result. The verse says in the Torah in Deuteronomy 1717, and he should not have too much silver and gold. The Talmud says, what is the amount of silver and gold that a king needs? Obviously a king needs a decent amount of money, right? What is it? Sufficient to entertain visitors. That's what he needs. That means that the king may amass sufficient money to pay the salaries of his servants, his soldiers that are employed by him on a year-round basis. He may not, however, amass wealth, the purpose of which is simply to lie in vaults, money not employed for a useful purpose. Right? Might, this might be a, a stinging uh, refutation or indictment of pure capitalism. The reason for this limitation is to prevent the king from becoming arrogant vis-a-vis -vis his fellow Jews. This latter reason applies to all three restrictions listed in our paragraph. People who amass excess wealth have a tendency of putting their faith in their wealth and simultaneously diminishing their reliance of God. A king is in greater danger of doing that as he is privileged. This is why he must make God his treasury and his fortress, right? If power corrupts and wealth corrupts, then absolute power and absolute wealth corrupt absolutely. And therefore, he has three different commandments. Kings have three different commandments to ensure that because of their position of power and privilege, they don't completely lose sight of what is good and what is bad. Through developing too much money, developing too many possessions, too many wives, they will, the power goes to their head. And therefore, they don't think about God anymore. Now, Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra, says that the prohibition not to amass too much silver and gold is intended to lessen the tax burden on the people, as this will be the source of the king's wealth. Historically, we find that Solomon, who was immensely rich, had imposed a heavy burden of taxes on his subjects. Wealth is compared to fire. The more wood, the greater the flame of the fire. We find that the people were resentful of the tax burden, and they said so to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The matter became such a burning issue that they murdered the king's tax collector, Adoni Ram, in his own house. We'll see this soon. So it's important to recognize that this is what is happening because of the fact that he was prone to gather too much wealth, more wealth than was absolutely necessary. He thought he would be above this prohibition, but instead it doesn't happen at all. Why they never complained uh, to King Solomon? That's a good question. So presumably King Solomon had a incredible uh, rulership. You know, everyone respected him ultimately. And everyone knew that his leadership was something that could not be questioned. So it wouldn't have really paid to try to question him. It wouldn't have gotten them anywhere. And perhaps also when it was King Solomon, they might've grumbled, but they might've been okay with it because they knew just the, the level of prestige that was going to happen was worth it, right? Um, an analogy that just popped into my head, maybe not a great analogy, but, uh, you know, so the national debt, you might be familiar with the national debt of the United States of America is not getting smaller. It's just getting larger and larger. Now, if I told you that we're leaving behind this national debt, but at least we're leaving behind a good country, it's like, okay, fine, maybe it's worth it. When I tell you that this country became a third world country and we're still leaving behind the national debt, then you're like, is this really worth it, right? 
So for King Solomon, yeah, it was worth being taxed heavily. At least they were getting prestige. At least, At least they were living in the, the most powerful country in the world, a brilliant leader. But now, now you're talking about for Ravam, who is a man of luxury, a hedonistic lifestyle. He's just going to luxuriate in this wealth. We don't need to be wealth taxed for that. And is there a reason why uh, Shechem is such a, you know, has such a bad reputation? Why specifically Shechem? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I, I would imagine that the idea is like this. When there is a place in the world where a bad incident has happened for the Jewish people, it becomes a place which is associated with that bad incident, and it becomes easier for bad things to happen in that place as well. Right? We have a similar concept in terms of having good things happen. Right? We have certain places in which tradition teaches us many good things happen in that place. Uh, certain days in which many good things happen. Right? You know, Rosh Hashanah is a day in which many different good things have happened throughout our history. Jerusalem is a place where many good things happen to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Right? So I, I would imagine something along those lines. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king. We have no portion in David, no shear in Jesse's son. To your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, O David. So the Israelites returned to their homes. And they say, you know what? Our alliance working underneath you is done. It is over with. So they all go back to their homes. Rechavam continued to reign over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah, right? So the ones who lived there, they were still part of his little tribal nation at this point. King Rechavim sent Adoram, who was in charge of the forced labor. But all Israel pelted him to death with stones. In other words, he thought, you know what? Okay, they're trying to put up a, a good battle, but you know, I'm going to send my guys and my guys, uh, you know, my um, uh, Shabak, they're going to go and they're going to ensure that everyone listens to me and they'll go back to the ways as it was. And instead, there is a complete rebellion and an uprising, and they literally kill him with stones. Thereupon, King Rechavim hurriedly mounted his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. Thus, Israel revolted against the house of David, as is still the case when it is being written down years later by uh, the prophet um, Jeremiah. A question. So at what point, um, at the beginning, the word Israel referred to the whole kind of Jewish population. At what point uh, it appears to be referring only to the northern northern tribes? Is there any? I think that's happening right now. I think right now we're splitting up into yeah. Israel versus Judah. Okay. That, that, that will from now on be the way that we refer to them. We will call them the Malachi Israel, the king of Israel, and Malachi Yehuda, and the king of Judah. We'll refer to them separately. And there was no single name for the United Kingdom except for United Kingdom. Right, I'm talking about the kingdom of David and Solomon. Is a was a single? We would have called it Israel. I think we would have called it Israel. Israel. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, when all Israel heard that Yeravam had returned, they sent messengers and summoned him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Now we know that's not just the tribe of Judah; it's also the tribe of Benjamin. So why are we calling it only the tribe of Judah? Either because Benjamin was so intertwined at this point with Judah, because A, they share a location, right? They're completely in, interwoven with each other you know, around the city of Jerusalem. Also, because Benjamin, he is actually leaving his own brother, right? And his own brother's tribe, right, is the one who is coming to make this rebellion, right? Yeravim is from Ephraim, right? And Benjamin, right, is from the only full brother of Joseph. But yet he does not go to Joseph, he goes with Judah. Because Judah had stood up for him when fighting with Joseph so many years before, right? Um, what about Levi? Oh, so we're, we're going to talk about Levi. Levi is actually, okay. into, Levi is all over the place. Levi does not have a specific um, ancestral land. When we talk about the 10 tribes, we don't include Levi. Okay. And, and what about Shimon? It always puzzled me because I thought that Shimon was like... Uh, in between Judah, right? It's in the south, and it's kind of. I always thought that they were together, but it's somehow yeah, they. Yeah, they, 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 they also went with Israel. Yeah, yeah. What's also interesting to note, by the way, and this is an important point: who was the previous king of the land of Israel before King David? Saul. Saul. Now, which tribe did he come from? 
Benjamin. 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 So you would have thought, oh, of course he's going to go over to the other side, right? Of course the Benjaminites will go over to the other side because they have these long harbored resentment towards the tribe of Judah from 80 years ago when their, when their forefather was deposed, right? But the truth of the matter is that they don't. They stick with them. Now, on his return to Jerusalem, Rechavim mustered all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 picked warriors to fight against the house of Israel in order to restore the kingship to Rechavim, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to King Rechavim, son of Solomon of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and the rest of the people. Thus said the Lord, you shall not set out to make war on your kinsmen, the Israelites. Let every man return to his home, for this thing has been brought about by me. They heeded the word of the Lord and turned back in accordance with the word of the Lord. So what do we see over here? We see that no matter how strategically inefficient and ineffective Rechavim has been, one thing is for sure, there's something that remains. And then what remains with him is that which his father and grandfather has taught him, which is that when the prophet tells you what to do, you listen to that prophet. This is not about his own honor. If it was only about his own honor, he would say, he would just completely disregard the words of the prophet and he would go attack anyways. And he might've been successful, but he says, no, if that's what Hashem wants me to do, I turn back. Now, Yeravim fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He moved out from there and fortified Penuel. Yeravim said to himself, now the kingdom may well return to the house of David. Now, what we're understanding right now is there is a shift in Yeravim's attitude. Up until now, Yeravim is trying to do the right thing. Yeravim has started off as a righteous person. He started off, he's giving King Solomon Musur. He is rebuking him for his behavior towards the people. And that was considered to be a good thing on some level, right? He then goes up and he fortifies this land and then he fortifies other land as well. I think what we're supposed to be thinking at this point is he's gotten too involved in the trappings of power. He's gotten too involved in no longer doing this for the people, but now doing this for himself. He's fortifying mm -hmm. these places and fortifying another place. He says to himself now is, uh-oh, the kingdom may well return to the house of, Is of David. Now, what was he told? He was told initially that now they will be split up into the two separate sets of tribes. And it will go into him. And before Mashiach comes, it will go back to King David, right? But the kingship will go to Yeravah. But immediately he starts asking himself, maybe it's going to go back to David. And therefore, we're going to see the actions that he takes and the disasters that it will end up leading to. If these people still go up to offer sacrifices at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will turn back to their master, King Rechavim of Judah. They will kill me and go back to King Rechavim of Judah. Now, why is he saying this? What is he concerned about? The Talmud explains it's very simple. The law is there's only one king who gets to sit when he is in the temple courtyard, and that is only a king from the tribe of Judah. So what would happen is, let's say they would have a, an uneasy alliance. They have the temple where there is God's presence to be found. So they have an uneasy alliance and they agree that the people will come to this temple to bring sacrifices three times a year on the high holidays, right? Um, not the high holidays, but the, um, the holidays of Pesach, Shuot, and Sukkot. Okay, they come to an agreement. What's going to happen is Yeravim is going to come and he's going to have to stand and Rechavim is going to sit. Well, that will clearly indicate that he's the true king. So I can't have that happen. So now, okay, not so crazy, at least in theory, not so crazy, but we'll see how now it goes off the deep end. So he started off on the right place, but now he gets to a place that is pretty, pretty awful. So the king took counsel and made two golden calves. He said to the people, you have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, this is obviously a reference to the golden calf, right? very, very similar language. That that's what the Erev Rav, that's what the people who built the golden calf, they say, Yisrael, this is your God, O Israel, right? Who took you up from the land of Egypt, same idea. He set, one up, he set up one in Bethel and placed the other in Dan. That proved to be a cause of guilt for the people went to worship the calf at Bethel and the one at Dan. He also made cult places and appointed priests from the ranks of the people who are not of Levite descent. These are all very, very bad things. And 
What the Torah is trying to actually hint at is something that is in this week's Torah portion. Now, this week's Torah portion is Parashat Korach. And Korach also was a very <laughs> distinguished person. And he was on a very high level. And initially what he comes to do is he comes to say, listen, the way that Moshe and Aaron is acting is incorrect. They're taking too much honor. They're taking too much respect for themselves. They're taking too much glory. And really all the people are holy too, right? They, he comes with more of an egalitarian type of complaint, right? What ends up happening is it slowly descends into a terrible, a mockery of his original intent in which he's ready to kill, in which he is now making the argument that we don't need any priests. Everybody is holy and everyone can bring sacrifices until he completely loses his mind and is willing to sacrifice his entire family in his misguided quest to be appointed the king or the, or the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. But initially he's a good person. What happens is he loses his mind once he gets involved in what we call machlokas. He gets involved in fighting and things then start snowballing from there. And so too with Yeravim. Yeravim starts off, he's a good person. He's a righteous person. But then he becomes the person to install idolatry. And not just install idolatry. He follows the same path that Korach does, which is to say you can have priests, even though they are not of the proper descent. Because every Jew is holy, which is really a way of ensuring that people stay on his side. Why does Korach tell everyone every Jew is holy? Because he knows if he does that, then the people will want to join. Right? When we talk about the... Um, we talk about the idea of uh, Korach. Korach is busy telling everyone, we're all equal, we're all equal. And Moshe sees right through it. And Moshe says, listen, everyone, Korach is not really a we're all equal kind of guy, right? He's, he's animal farm, right? We're all equal. Some of us are more equal than others. He's really doing this for his own power, for his own self-aggrandizement. But he's claiming that everybody's equal so as to get everyone, all of you, the, the people who are on the lower end, lower echelons of society, he wants you on his side. So he says we're all equal, but that's not really his intent. And so too with Yeravim, he ends up reaching a place in which he wants to ensure that everyone feels they have a power here. And then they're going to stay with his calf. They no longer need to go worship the calf, not the calf, no longer need to go to the temple. They can worship the calf and they can have their siblings coming to bring the offerings with them. It's so much more comfortable. It's so much more egalitarian. It's so much more exciting. You don't need to follow the specific set of rules and very, you know, uh, regimented hierarchy that happens in Jerusalem. And indeed, many people fall prey to this sin. He stationed at Bethel the priests of the shrines that he had appointed, the sacrifice to the calves that he had made. And Yeravim established the festival on the 15th day of the eighth month. In imitation of the festival in Judah, he established one at Bethel and he ascended the altar there on the 15th day of the eighth month, the month in which he had contrived of his own mind to establish a festival for the Israelites. Yeravim ascended the altar that he had made in Bethel. So now his descent is complete. Not only has he established idols, not only has he stopped them from going to Jerusalem, he has broken the hierarchy of having Levites. And now he's even gone. He's made his own holiday as well. And the purpose verse tells us, the month in which he had contrived of his own mind. In other words, this is no longer about the people. This is no longer about doing the best thing for the people, which it initially was. Now it's all about him. He's completely lost sight of what is good and what is bad. Now, what ends up happening to this rebellion, right, to the northern kingdom? In theory, this northern kingdom would have been a good thing. Hashem told Achia, Hashiloni, the prophet, tell Yeravim, he is going to be the next king and he'll have a separate kingdom. And he'll be the king until it's time for it to go back to Judah. But it doesn't say anywhere that he's going to bring idols. It doesn't say anywhere that they're going to be exiled earlier and be lost to posterity. We do not know who the 10 tribes are, right? We don't know who they are, right? They're gone to us. Why did that have to happen? So the reason why that happens, and we're going to read right now, let me see. Uh, no, I, I didn't end up putting it on the source sheet. The, the Talmud tells us there are three people who are basically going to be going to hell and are not going to be coming out. One of them is Yeravam ben Nebat. It is not because he succeeds 
secedes from the southern kingdom. It is because of the idol worship. It is because of the levels of depredation and complete, complete denial of all of the most important Torah principles that he has introduced to the Jewish people. The fact that he ends up reforming Judaism and then ultimately this disappears. We don't know who the 10 tribes are anymore, right? To me, that's a very trenchant observation throughout history of what happens. When people try to change Judaism, they leave Judaism and the descendants are no longer here, right? You think about the Karaites, you think about the Sadducees, you think about the Essenes, right? And all of these people, there aren't anybody, maybe a couple of Karaites left in the world, right? There's nobody left though, right? The only people who are, who are around and identify as Jewish today, it's because within two or three generations going back, they had Orthodox ancestors, right? They say a story, and I don't know if this is true. I spent some time trying to figure out if the story is true. I heard it um, once from Ken Spiro. He says a story like he's a historian. He says a story like this. He says that um, Temple Emmanuel in New York City, it's been around for almost 175 years by now. At their 100th anniversary in 1942 or whatever year it was, they had a, um, I think it was 1945 actually. They wanted to make a reunion. They had an anniversary party and they wanted to bring some of the descendants of the founders of Temple Emmanuel, right? Which had been founded hundred years before. And they could not find a Jewish descendant of any of the founders of Temple Emmanuel, right? <laughs> now, I, like I said, I don't know if the story is true. I did some, I couldn't find any, anything. I couldn't really find where it was sourced. I don't know where he got it from. But one thing I think we could all ask ourselves right now, right? And, and I think it's, it's a tough question, but thinking about the different temples that people might belong to around here or different, uh, you know, synagogues, how certain could we be what percentage of the descendants of the people praying there 100 years from now will still be Jewish? Right. I don't know. Not, th not that many, right? I, th I think it's safe to say. I don't know how many of you saw that Pew, the Pew report about what's going on in America today with people who are conservative and people who are reform and, and how, how many of them remain that way the next generation, two generations, three generations. Uh, it's scary. It's very scary to see, but this is not a new phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that starts with Yeruvim. Yeruvim says, you know what? We're going to change the Torah a little bit to make it easier to have our Northern Kingdom. Well, it's not going to change it that much. By the way, initially, if you think he walked in initially and said, we're setting up two calves, time to worship calves, these golden calves. You think the people would have said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah, that makes sense. They didn't forget what happened in the desert that quickly. He sets up the two golden calves and says, not that these are the God themselves. No, God forbid. Of course, they're not God. These are just a means of helping you focus your prayer towards God. And then slowly, it obviously spirals into a, a terrible chain where they end up thinking that these are actually God and, and pray to the calves themselves. But I cannot emphasize this point enough. This is not a secret. This is always what has happened. And this will always be what does happen when people try to reform Judaism, to make it adapted, to make it more contemporary. If they're doing that within the guidelines of the halachic tradition, then it's okay. But if they're not doing it within the guidance of the halachic tradition, and they'll follow the, the ethical teachings without following the halachic, the ritualistic teachings, unfortunately, we know what's going to happen. We know it's not going to be long before those people are no longer Jewish. And I don't mean to say individuals can become not Jewish. What I mean to say is that if you marry not Jews and you're a girl, fine, your children are Jewish. If you are a boy and you marry a non-Jewish person, then your children are not Jewish anymore, right? And it's only a couple of generations till that's going to happen. It, it's frightening to see, but like I said, it, the, the writing is something that we've seen already. And therefore it's up to us to make that decision. What are we going to do to ensure this doesn't happen? How are we going to help stop that, right? Um, I, th I think that's an important part of the lesson. The, to me, the two important parts of this, uh, three, I would say three different points that are very important in this chapter, like very instructive. Number one, how Rechavim deals with adversity, how Rechavim deals with his antagonists, right? In terms of leadership, 
roles in terms of a leadership advice? How, how, how should leaders deal with this kind of a challenge to their authority? And how he does every single step is exactly the wrong thing. The idea of how Yerobim starts off with the proper intentions, but it ends up morphing into a very bad place. And then what we also see implicitly, which is the beginning of the downfall and the losing of the 10 tribes to Judaism and to history, right? Which happens because of the fact that he tries to change the temple. In a court, in it, what, what's the word again? The word is the month in which he had contrived of his own mind to establish a festival for the Israelites. In other words, to the extent that you think that you can make things up, milibo, from your own heart, it's not going to happen. It never has happened. Success is never going to happen for those people, right? And unfortunately, we see this happening again and again and again. And the question is, are we going to wake up when it's too late? Or are we going to say, we have to, we have to figure out a way to return to something so that we, indeed we can assure a secure future for the Jewish people, right? And that there should be Jews around to greet Mashiach, right? But I think that those are the three big lessons from, from this, uh, this chapter right here. Okay. I have a question. Go ahead. Um, so you mentioned in the previous class that part of the reason that we are in exile is to spread the message, right? Mm -hmm. So how does how do we do that? As you're saying, right, there is a, obviously a threat because when we lived in ghettos, then we were preserved, right? But when we start being, you know, more like like here in the U.S. And then, then there is a threat of being assimilated and you know, being influenced. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very important question. I think that's, uh, yeah, I'm saying so. I think, I think you're right that the conservative movement, at least, their idea was to follow a halachic tradition, which we then saw wasn't necessarily an affiliation to halacha, but it was an idea of saying, how do we adapt to modern times while still trying to remain true to our tradition? That was their idea. The problem is that they kind of, took away from the actual divinity of the oral Torah, okay? So if you understand the oral Torah as being somewhat of a more man-made construct, then you have the ability to argue with the oral Torah and you have no sort of, uh, not affiliation, but you have no sort of, um, you don't have to retain a complete and total fidelity to the transmission of the oral Torah, right? And therefore they were following in the footsteps of the oral Torah, but they were able to leave it behind in certain places where they felt that that was an important, an important uh, place we need to leave it behind, we're allowed to do that because we recognize the importance of remaining modern and contemporary, right? And this is the problem that you're talking about. And this is also a problem that Orthodox Judaism also struggles with, right? Of remaining uh, mixed in with the people around us, keeping our distance, right? But at the same time, recognizing you have to be able to make Kiddush Hashem. You have to be able to present the world, you have to be able to resent to the world that Judaism is a, a holy religion, that Jewish people are people who strive to be holy, right? And you have to be relatable, but at the same time, you also have to recognize the laws. Um, our next door neighbor, um, yesterday, uh, yesterday, our next door neighbor brought over a, um, I guess because COVID is somewhat over now, we moved in uh, six months ago now, but they brought over a you know, really delicious looking loaf of bread with olives in it, like fresh baked, you know, sourdough bread with olives in it. And um, I didn't really know what to do because obviously we're not going to eat that. I also don't know them. I can't just say to them right then on the spot, I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat this. So what we made up, we're gonna do is we'll, we'll bake something and not me, my daughters or my wife. I don't bake, I cook, but I don't bake. Um, so we're gonna bake something and we'll bring it over to them. And we'll say, you know, we'd like to give this to you. And they'll say, you know, we have dietary restrictions. We follow the Torah, right? And the truth of the matter is that that is actually why the sages wanted us not to eat food baked by a non-Jew is because when you share in food baked by someone else, you share in food that's cooked by someone else, there's a feeling of being close together. There's a feeling of becoming normalized relations between each other. And the Torah doesn't want us to do that. The Torah wants us to keep our distance. It doesn't mean you don't be polite. It doesn't mean you don't, teach other people how to act in the proper way, that when they see a Jew, they should say, this is someone living an uplifted life. But that also means that there'll be times when there'll be a little bit of friction. There'll be a little bit of attention, right? It is insulting to be told, no, I'm sorry, I can't eat your food. It's insulting, right? I recognize that. But the Torah wants us to have that friction, 
Torah wants us to recognize you are not like all other people, right? We have to be part of the modern world, but still recognize that. And, and I'm not saying that's not a difficult balance to strike. And I understand the appeal of what the conservative movement was trying to accomplish. But I think if we still refuse to recognize that this is going to be the fruits of the conservative movement, I think that would be silly of us. I think that would be putting our heads in the sand to not acknowledge that this is going to be a natural result. This is what's been happening for over 3,000 years now. When people try to tamper with the system, it doesn't work. Right? Well, not always. One person made it work, like, right? Jesus. I mean, he, look how many followers he has. So let's speak this out. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to say that they'll disappear. What I mean to say is they'll no longer be Jewish. Because yeah, yes. most Christians are not Jewish today. And you are right. Actually, I think you would use that as an example of how you see how quickly it disappears. So initially, they were Jewish, right? And initially, they were keeping the Torah. They were keeping the entire Torah. The early Christians were Jews. They believed in one thing different, that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the only thing that they believed differently, right? That's the only thing. But then Saul, or uh, Paul, as we know him, comes along and completely deviates from Judaism and says, nah, Shabbos is on Sunday, ah, no more circumcision, uh, Pesach is no longer about leavened bread, takes lots of things away from, the, from the, the, the Jewish tradition. And by doing so, he saves Judaism from falling into this abyss of this terrible belief, the faulty, perverted, corrupted belief. But he also, once again, by moving it away from Judaism, it was gone. Whoever was left as a Jew at that point, and they were Christian, Within a couple of generations, they were gone. I think that's actually the exception that proves the rule. I'm not saying that they don't exist. They still exist. They're still people. They still have a, a there, there are a, um, what we call Salam Elikim. They're still made in the, in the likeness of God, but they're not Jewish anymore. Right? The Jews have a mission to carry out in this world. And I think we have to acknowledge that this is the results of a misguided notion of staying contemporary, staying relevant. These are the results. On that very happy note, <laughs> um, the good thing is I will tell you one thing one last thing that is a good thing uh, Korach right right. this week's Torah portion Korach does rebel he ends up having this awful death who is his descendant who we have read so much about in a previous book the prophet Samuel is a direct descendant of Korach okay so he had good intentions and he merits to have this tremendous prophet who's the second greatest prophet of all times because of his good intentions so you have good intentions, you try to do the best that you can, and hopefully it could end well. But it's just important to always recognize, once again, compromise does not necessarily mean adaptation, right? So to hit that sweet spot of where you're adapting to the modern world, but still ensuring the continuity of the Jewish people is difficult, but it's absolutely necessary. It's a lesson that we need to have learned by now, and hopefully we do learn that lesson soon before it's too late. Okay, take care, everyone. <laughs> Be well. Good Have night. a wonderful night. Take Thank care. Good night. Thank you. Very good class. Thank you. Thank you.